Recently, I had the opportunity to narrate the very fun podcast, Echoes of History, Ragnarok, a historical podcast inspired by the video game Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. If you know names like Thor, Loki, and Odin, just wait until you hear the tales of how they came to be and how they came to an end. It's the second season of Ubisoft's popular podcast, Echoes of History. Subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge five all-new episodes narrated by yours truly, as well as the first season about Vikings, available now. You can find the Echoes of History podcast where you're listening to this podcast, so subscribe now. That's Echoes of History, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the History Guy podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at the History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and the History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join the History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with the History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. This episode of the History Guy podcast is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about the United States Coast Guard and two of their contributions to combat in the World Wars. First, the History Guy tells the story of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Tampa, which served in World War I and became the United States Navy's largest combat casualty loss of the war. Then, the History Guy talks about the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Icarus, which faced a larger and much better armed German U-boat in Torpedo Alley in 1942. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. The naval wars, a relatively overlooked part of the Great War, lost in the drama of a worldwide conflict and with few large fleet actions. Yet in many ways, the war swung on the battle at sea as both the Entente and Central Powers sought to starve the other through naval blockade. There are many compelling stories of the efforts to defend commerce from the U-boat menace, but the contributions of the United States Coast Guard, which had only been officially created in 1915, is an even more forgotten part of the conflict. And yet the Coasties served and died in the Battle of the Atlantic. On September 26, 1918, the United States suffered its greatest naval combat loss of life of the First World War. The loss of the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Tampa is history that deserves to be remembered. The revenue cutter Miami was one of two authorized in 1910 and built by the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company. Contrary to appearance, the boat was not named after the city of Miami, Florida, but like many revenue cutters, was named after a Native American peoples, the Algonquin-speaking people indigenous to the Great Lakes called the Miami. 190 feet long, with a beam of 32.5 feet and a draft of 14 feet, the 1,181-ton displacement vessel was armed with three six-pounder rapid-fire guns. With her 1,260-horsepower vertical triple-expansion steam engine, she could make 16 knots. Established as the Revenue Marine in 1790 for the purpose of customs enforcement, the service was renamed the Revenue Cutter Service in 1890. 
By then, the role of the service had broadened, and the Miami, according to the 2017 book Tampa Zone, published by the Tampa Bay History Center, was part of the Revenue Cutter fleet and worked in South Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, Florida Straits, Key West, and Tampa, collecting customs duties and tonnage taxes and deterring smuggling. The Miami was very active from her launch in 1912. In addition to customs duties, she rescued ships in distress, towed or destroyed derelicts that were hazard to shipping, and in 1915 captured a ship running guns to Mexico. In 1913, Miami was assigned to what would become the International Ice Patrol, established in response to the 1912 sinking of RMS Titanic. Among her many duties, perhaps her most unique at the time was, of course, fighting pirates. At what has been described as the Bay Area's biggest party the Gasparilla Pirate Festival. Inspired by an apocryphal Spanish pirate named Jose Gaspar, supposedly the last of the buccaneers, the Tampa Bay Gasparilla Pirate Festival is a carnival-type celebration that was first held in 1904 and featuring an invasion by King Gasparilla. In 1913, the Miami was invited to participate in the festivities, where the Tampa Bay Tribune noted the pirate ship fired a shot across Miami's bow after which the commander of the Miami consulted with his officers and also with representatives of the city who were on board. In the end, he caused the flag of his ship to be dipped to the pirate king in admission of the fact that he was to rule over the city of Tampa and the waters adjacent thereto for at least one day. The participation of the Miami in the festival became an annual occurrence and helped to establish the ship's relationship with the people of Tampa. The website of Hillsborough County, Florida writes, The ship and its crew had become fixtures at Gasparilla festivities, firing the cutter's cannons at a mock pirate ship during the latter vessel's annual invasion of the city. The booming exchange initiated the tradition of gun blasts that continues today. The Tampa's appearance also served as a Coast Guard recruiting tool, which largely is why two dozen local men were crew members. Tampa's own notes, Many of the crew members were from Tampa and had joined the service when the ship was in port. They not only took part in the flotilla invasion, but were able to enjoy the parade and the fair. In 1915, Congress combined the Revenue Cutter Service and the U.S. Life Saving Service to form the United States Coast Guard. That year, the Miami made headlines when she survived a thrilling ride in a West Indies hurricane by using a derelict vessel it was towing as a sea anchor. The following year, right before the Pirate Festival, the Miami was officially renamed Tampa in recognition of the boat's close association with the city. Tampa's own reports. The Tampa Rotary Club hosted an elegant banquet for the newly named Tampa's officers and crew at the Tampa Bay Hotel and presented the ship with a silver service. The website of American Legion Post 5 of Tampa, Florida describes the busy season for the crew of the Cutter. 1917 was very eventful to the crew of Tampa. The South Florida Fair and the Gasparilla Carnival of Tampa was the greatest yet, lasting nine days from February 2nd through the 10th. With four days to recuperate from the Gala Affair, they went on to patrol the annual boat regatta at Miami from the 15th through the 17th of February. On March 27th and 28th, they patrolled the races at St. Petersburg Yacht Club in St. Petersburg, Florida. But life was about to change for the Tampa and the nation. The website continues. There was a shadow over the spring gaiety of 1917, however. February 2nd, opening day of the fair and carnival in Tampa, was the day the United States broke off diplomatic relations with Germany. Perhaps the men of the Tampa sensed that they would be the last celebration with the citizens of Tampa, Florida. On April 6th, the United States declared war with Germany, and immediately the Tampa and other Coast Guard cutters were transferred to the Navy. The Tampa was refitted with newer, larger 3-inch guns, painted Navy gray, and sent off to war.
The historian of the United States Coast Guard notes that the Tampa, under the command of Captain Charles Satterley, was one of six Coast Guard vessels that was assigned to do convoy duty in European waters during World War I. Satterley had become a cadet with the Revenue Cutter Service in 1895, and by 1915 had achieved the rank of captain when he had taken command of the cutter. Satterley was from Connecticut, but he had spent significant time in Tampa with the Revenue Cutter Service and was a familiar sight as the captain of the Tampa. Tampa's own says of him, as he served as captain on the Tampa and was in our port, he would take showers at the hotel, write cars and letters home. Remember, he even received the silver service from the Rotary Club in 1916 at the Tampa Bay Hotel. Captain Satterley was one of our boys, too. He was one of many. Tampa's own continues, three sets of brothers and two cousins from Tampa were part of the Tampa's crew. The Mansfield boys, Frederick, age 17, and Percy, age 20, joined right out of Hillsborough High School. Leonard and William Bozeman were first cousins. The crew also included brothers Algie and Arthur Bevins. Tampa's own notes that Algie worked for Furman Motor Cars, which had been a bicycle shop only 15 years before. The Furman family still owns the business today, a century later. Also on the crew were brothers Wambolt and Homer Sumner. A September 2018 edition of the Tampa Bay Times says of the brothers, Wambolt Sumner, the ship's acting writer, hailed from Tampa. He loved to play baseball and always had a smile. He joined the Coast Guard out of guilt after his younger brother, Homer, enlisted. The crew also included three African Americans from the Tampa area. Eston Drew Legree, Herman Carmichael, and William Holland. Tampa's own notes that the three had grown up just a few blocks apart. Notable on the crew were its youngest members. Vincento Guerriero was just 16. According to the Tampa Bay Times, he had signed up under the assumed name Jimmy Ross because he was afraid that his father would object to his enlistment. But the Times continues, Guerriero wasn't the youngest crew member, though. That distinction fell to 15-year-old Irving Slickland of New York City, son of a lawyer. Tall for his age, Slickland decided to enlist one day after school in March 1918. His grandmother was so appalled that she ran to the recruiting office in her bedroom slippers, followed by his father, but they couldn't get him released. His parents finally gave their reluctant blessing. In all, 24 members of the Tampa's normal complement of 70 officers and men hailed from Tampa. Tampa was assigned as an ocean escort to Squadron 1 of the patrol forces, commanded by Rear Admiral Albert P. Niblack. Writer Alexander Lazarly, a Coast Guard veteran, described the Tampa service in his 2003 book, The Coast Guard in World War I, An Untold Story. She was assigned ocean escort duty, protecting convoys from German submarines on the route between Gibraltar and the southern coast of England. On the average, she spent more than half of her time at sea and steamed more than 3,500 nautical miles, or 6,500 kilometers, per month. Between 27 October 1917 and 31 July 1918, she escorted 18 convoys between Gibraltar and Great Britain, losing only two ships out of all those escorted. Leslie notes that the Tampa brought her guns into action several times, but did not have a verifiable run-in with a U-boat. Wambolt Sumner wrote his family, We see lots of sailors and soldiers from the States, and we have to tell them about all the subs, whether we have seen them or not. And in another letter, we're out looking for Fritz's. Hope we get one. The duty was certainly not without risk. The history of the ship described in the U.S. Naval History and Heritage Command notes that on May 21st, there was a premature detonation from gum number two, resulting in a mortal wound to one of the ship's coxswains, who died of his wounds the following day. When the cutter reached Devonport on 25 May, the body was landed and prepared for burial. This death prompted the assignment of a Navy surgeon to the ship's complement. Despite the wartime conditions, the crew sought to reassure their family. Algie Bevins wrote in a letter, both well, etc., and going about our duties without any fears. And it strikes me that if we can see nothing to be afraid of, why, you all should have no great cause to worry. 
The danger is no more here than in any other industry back home, so just put those petty fears aside and look at the bright side, always. In fact, the crew had other concerns. The Tampa Bay Times notes that Algy complained that his family wasn't writing him enough, and in September, Wambolt Sumner sent his family the happy news that he had presented his fiancée a five-diamond ring and planned to marry her when he returned. The Tampa earned a stellar reputation for her service. In her 11 months' service, the ship had been at sea more than half the time and was known as one of the most efficient of the ocean escort force. On September 15th, Rear Admiral Niblack offered a commendation for that service. This excellent record is evidence of a high state of efficiency, an excellent ship spirit, and an organization capable of keeping the vessel in service with minimum shore assistance. The squadron commander takes great pleasure in congratulating the commanding officer, officers and crew of the record that they have made. Two days later, on September 17, 1918, Tampa, in company with her fellow escorts, departed Gibraltar with the 32-ship convoy HG-107, bound for Liverpool. Robert Johnson, a professor of history at the University of Alabama, described the actions of the Tampa as the convoy approached its destination in his 1983 book, Guardians of the Sea, History of the United States Coast Guard. As the convoy stood in the Bristol Channel during the evening of 26 September, Captain Charles Satterley received the customary order to take the cutter to Milford Haven. Sometimes later, at about 8.45, the shock of an explosion was felt by several in the convoy. It seems not to have been important enough for the British destroyers to investigate, but when the Tampa failed to arrive at Milford Haven, escort vessels based there undertook a search. Three days cruising along the cutter's probable track resulted in the recovery of two unidentified bodies and some floating wreckage. The fate of the Tampa only became known after the war, when the records of the German submarine UB-91 were recovered. The Tampa Bay Times summarizes the encounter. As dusk was setting in over the Irish Sea, a German submarine spotted a lone ship steaming towards England's Bristol Channel. The U-boat dived to attack. About half an hour later, it fired a single torpedo. In his battle notes, the commander, Captain Lieutenant Wolf Hans Hartwig, described the explosion. A black cloud of smoke and a second explosion may be the depth charges aboard the ship. Then, Hertwig wrote, not to be seen anymore. Within 15 minutes, he had the submarine surfaced to search for survivors, bodies, or wreckage. Nothing found, he wrote. The Naval History and Heritage Command notes, all on board the cutter, 111 Coast Guard officers and men, four Navy sailors, and 14 British passengers were lost. The Coast Guard Historian's Officer says of the loss of the Tampa, the sinking of the Cutter was the single largest loss of life for the Coast Guard during World War I. The sacrifices of her crew were not forgotten. The city of Tampa conducted a fundraising campaign, Remember the Tampa, in an effort to sell war bonds. In 1921, the Coast Guard christened a new Cutter in her name. Seven years later, on 23 May 1928, the U.S. Coast Guard Memorial was dedicated at Arlington National Cemetery, honoring the sacrifice of those who had served aboard Tampa. The Punta Gorda Herald of Punta Gorda, Florida wrote at the time, Thus are the horrors of war brought home to us all, and Tampa and the friends and relatives of the dead have the sympathy of us all. The loss of Tampa and her crew was perhaps all the more tragic because of the timing. The Tampa was sunk less than six weeks before the end of the war. It is difficult to contextualize the loss of these 129 souls in the context of a war in which some 20 million people died. But the loss of the Tampa illustrates the horrors of that war. An April 2019 article in Stars and Stripes magazine tells the story of Anna Bonaparte, who was four years old when her father James Wilkie died on board the USS Tampa. 
though she didn't have many memories of her father. She constantly spoke about him and his service in the Coast Guard, said her son, Wallace Bonaparte. A January 2001 edition of the St. Petersburg Times quoted Edwin T. Galvin, whose father and uncle served on the ship. Galvin says that his father transferred off a month before it sank and never got over the guilt. The ship left port here with his brother and his two best friends, Galvin said. He never saw them again. He talked about it through his tears many times. The Tampa Bay Times quoted Rodney Kite Powell, curator of the Tampa History Center. So many young men. 24 from the area lost their lives in the blink of an eye. That was just devastating. Wayne Bolt Sumner's fiance sent the five diamond ring that he had given her to his family. The Tampa Bay Times reports that it is now in the possession of his niece, given to her by her mother. The family never learned anything more about the betrothed, just that her first name was Jessie. All we know is her first name, said the niece. Her identity and how she decided she wanted my mother to have the ring, we will never know. In 1999, at the recommendation of retired Master Chief Petty Officer James C. Bunch, the Coast Guard began an ongoing project to identify family of the Coast Guardsmen killed aboard the Tampa and give them Purple Hearts. Stars and Stripe magazine explains that the Purple Heart wasn't authorized for the Coast Guard until 1942, and it wasn't until a decade later, in 1952, that it became possible to award it retroactively to 1917, and apparently the Coast Guardsmen lost aboard the Tampa were overlooked at the time. In 1919, five Coast Guard patrol craft were named in the honor of the officers of the Tampa, and two U.S. destroyers have been named after Captain Charles Satterley. The name Tampa continues with the Coast Guard, most recently with the 270-foot medium-endurance-class cutter in service since 1984. The Hillsborough County webpage concludes, says the Coast Guard, few words carry as much weight in the annals of the history of the Coast Guard as the word Tampa. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So, both of these stories are uh, incredible examples of forgotten history. I think it's easy for us to forget just how broadly, ultimately, all parts of the world served and contributed to the war effort. Uh, do you recall what brought like this particular story to your attention? Uh, you know, I, I just like to do Coast Guard stories. I do uh, for numerous reasons. Uh, and I, I think that I was searching for I'd like to talk about the Naval War in the First World War because it's uh, relatively forgotten. Uh, and I think that this came from just kind of looking at uh, U.S. naval losses, uh, because, of course, uh, the thing that was notable about the Tampa was that the largest naval loss of the uh, U.S. naval loss of the First World War was actually a Coast Guard cutter that had was serving in the Navy at the time because, of course, the Coast Guard came under the Navy during the war. So I, I think that's just where I kind of stumbled on it. I was I was kind of poking around both World War One and the Coast Guard, and, and uh, this is really a, a compelling story of World War One and the Coast Guard. Yeah, we've we've talked about a number of these these uh, the sea battles, the naval part of World War One. It does get forgotten. I think, uh, as you mentioned in the episode, there was no there were no major fleet actions. Well, there were there was a little bit at the beginning of the, the beginning of the war, but other than that, well, it was yeah, there, it was, there was submarines. Jet running, but, uh... and, yeah, <laughs> there was there was some, uh, but for the most part, you know, after that, they, I, people I think you know kind of envisioned the the naval part of World War One to be two navies just kind of hanging out yeah i mean uh, even I, I think in world war ii we talk about the battle of the atlantic but I, I don't think that at least in america we pay nearly as much attention to the battle of the atlantic in the first world war which was really a very similar uh and just as terrifying yeah. 
in uh, the U.S. component. I mean, because we got there after Jutland, uh, the U.S. component is so is so very different. And yet, still, yeah, those stories are in some ways are even more compelling because the technology was was even newer and and more rudimentary. Uh, and so that you know that idea where you have a destroyer you know, chasing a submarine or a submarine chasing a destroyer or something like that is a, I mean those are those are really gripping. Usually there's not a lot of aid nearby. Usually one can destroy the other, uh, so everybody's life is in danger. And those those tend to be really you know dangerous, compelling stories. Uh, and so I, I I love to tell those stories, and especially where you can find say battle reports and et cetera. Those really tell the human drama of, of war. I mean that is small unit action at its at its at its most gritty. We were talking about the Q ships uh, just just uh, Friday about on the channel, and so that talked about some of the submarines and stuff too. And it's it's incredible how new that technology was and how quickly it changed. Because I think we we always imagine uh, submarines were attacking merchant vessels from the beginning and i guess that was something they had to learn is that yeah. that was the best place for submarines uh, strategically yeah it was, and it it's was also interesting for both sides in the great war yeah. uh, because uh the, the uh, you know the idea you thought is that you would be protecting your your supply lines from surface ships with surface ships uh, and it turned out that I mean, from I mean, the stalemate that was driven essentially meant uh, you know the German fleet was bottled up, and the British fleet couldn't move because they were bottling up the German fleet, uh, and then that's what yeah. kind of shifted the whole the whole you know, way everything worked, and that led to submarine warfare, and then the interesting arguments over the meaning of submarine warfare because it chose so changed yeah. naval warfare, and uh, you know, does a belligerent have a right to even defend their merchant ships? Because if they do, then that challenges the submarines, which means that the submarines have to fire from uh, ambush and that changed the whole nature of the war and it's an interesting discussion i mean uh, and we also had yeah. we had an episode on charles fryatt who was a who was a merchant seaman who because he used his ship to defend himself to, to essentially drive a, a u-boat underwater he was uh, he was tried uh, as essentially an ununiformed combatant and was shot because of that mm. so i mean and some of those questions have not been have not been resolved and so it does make no, uh, it's a very yeah it makes it and it's a different I mean that's a very different kind of prior to that you wouldn't have a whole ship full of men like you happened to the Tampa a whole fit, ship full of men sinking without seeing the you know their opponent I mean there's there's just there's, disappear yeah there's a lot less you know noble chivalry about what happened there uh, and that's you know that's there were a lot of people dying on the front from you know a shell that they didn't know who fired that shell and it just landed on them I mean that was just part of the the, the the machinations of war you put i mean it was an industrial war and that meant that there was just so many different ways to die i mean that's just how it went yeah. new all kinds of new weapons the uh one of the things that i think well it was fairly unique to world war one and that it was different from world war two uh was that there there was no kind of sonar uh, depth charges were were just barely something that we we understood yeah, yeah they um, were built designed by the new. by the british during the war stolen by the americans straight up took their work and then patented it but uh, uh depth charges <laughs> uh, and started to be used during the war but uh, yeah it was really an interwar thing uh when the the british started researching you know ideas about like how do we you know how do we detect submarines and how do submarines detect yeah. things around them uh and so yeah it was uh, it, you know it was in some ways it was so similar to what was going on in the second world war but i mean the the technology was very very different the capabilities of submarines was very very different the capabilities of aircraft yeah. which would become important in anti-submarine war were very very different and so you can you can see the similarities between the two but it's it's kind of interesting uh how different the real tactics had to be between trying to operate a submarine and a submarine chaser 
uh, to uh, yeah. in in the first world war as opposed to the second world war the technology transformed that very much over that interim period yeah it's really incredible i hadn't thought about before uh, until recently really the fact that you know those submarines when you're traveling without without that modern technology without any ability to really use sonar you're just traveling underwater and hoping yeah you don't know what you're <laughs> gonna run into yeah. yeah they had and you they have couldn't to, see underwater I mean, I mean i think that's difficult i mean i think it's difficult on the submarine today it was certainly difficult on the submarine in the second world war but in the first world war yeah you're you're just blind uh, and uh, you've got maybe a periscope yeah and a, a very small periscope and if you put your periscope up then that you know you're submerged because you don't want them to see you so that periscope yeah. is the first chance that someone could see you yeah, so I, I, even even when you were were set up, I mean, and, and aiming at a target, you have very little situational awareness of what might be going on yeah. around you. Yeah. Well, and I understand why that that kind of makes them. You know, they're not able to move quickly and readjust their position quickly in combat. They yeah. had to. It had to be a surprise attack. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just an interesting an interesting and completely different way of thinking about how that kind of combat was fought. Uh, but World War One was was. As I, I mean, all wars are testing new technologies, but it's interesting because World War One is really, you know, the one of these first major modern industrial wars, and so that, I mean, everything so much was different in World War One, and the scale of things was different than it was going to be in earlier wars. It was. Yeah, I had a discussion once about uh, it being the first railway war, and some people argued that the Civil War was the first railway war, and there were there there were the wars that, but I mean, the extent to which rail was used. Uh, in in World War One, where they were literally they had whole crews that would go and build railway into the trenches. I mean, they would you know they were building wow. railway and and telegraph as they went. Uh, and so it's it's amazing all the new technologies that went into that war and what they meant uh, and how they were used and then you know how deadly they were. Shrapnel munitions changed yeah. uh, so that we went back to wearing helmets like they wore during the Middle Ages. And that was that was, was that uh... was this war. It was just remarkable how that changes, right? And that that we had this idea that modern weapons meant that armor didn't make sense, and now we've got, well, and then of course the tank is something of a, but just like a moving kind of castle. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a, well, we're going back to armoring our troops, which I mean, which yeah. we had to completely abandoned during the Second World War, and uh, though there, there was some actually trench armor and stuff the Germans used in the in the First World War, but uh, in the in the Great War, but in in the Second World War, we didn't armor our troops. Now we're now we're giving our troops more armor, and we're that impacts you know how we do medicine, all sorts of things, because your injuries are more likely to come away from the central body, which is protected by the armoring. And I mean, yeah, the war technology of war changes the nature of fighting and the nature of dying. And, but I mean, what, what happened to the Tampa? Uh, that could have happened in the second world war. I mean, there, there were sure. submarine hunters who never saw the submarine, never heard the shot that hit them. Uh, and the only, the only idea that we have that what happened to them is that later after we won the war, we, we got the report from the, from the enemy who sank them. And that's what happened to the Tampa. And that easily could have happened. To, they did happen. There were subchasers that just disappeared uh, during the second yeah. world war. And, and, and they never, never saw the shot that was coming. It's amazing just how big the ocean is, which seems obvious. But, you know, you think we'd be able to find some. We, we knew the basic area of where that ship was, and we still weren't able to find anything. It's just gone. Yeah. yeah uh, or would, they found, I guess they, they sank found, like, very, a couple very quickly. Of, there was no one uh, with them yeah. when they sank. So they just knew, you know, where they were going and where they didn't wind up. But there were bigger ships than that that disappeared uh, over, you know, over the course of the war, in, in both wars. Yeah. That just, that just yeah. took they're, off. And they're then, just... They were gone, yeah. Ultimately small in the uh, face of the size of the oceans. Um, there's still, I mean, there's still a lot of wrecks that we've been trying to find, whether for 
because uh, they it didn't sink where we thought it did or stuff like that. And you you find even ones that we thought we knew where they sank that, that aren't always uh, correct. And more <laughs> true of submarines than anything else. There, uh, yeah. we, we honestly don't know that. And so there, yeah, we we find submarines in places where we didn't know there was going to be one, and we don't find submarines in places where we thought there were. What they thought were submarine kills weren't necessarily submarine kills, and that's I mean because the, the submarine and its ability to evade means often. That we really don't know what happened to him, and so there were whole crews that never came back. Uh, the Orzel, the, the the Polish submarine, that uh, such yeah. a brave uh, adventure to get from Poland to England, and then on a regular patrol, just never came back. Still hasn't been found. Still don't know what happened to it. And and honestly, I mean, the explanations huge number of them. Who has any idea what could have happened to it? Who, who has or any where? idea? Yeah, uh, was it was a. Uh, uh, was an Argentinian, it was just an Argentine submarine, right? That sank just like last yeah. year. Uh, and it took them months to figure out even where that sank. And that was, that was just, you know, and that's, now. that's in the modern age yeah. where we have a way better ability it, to track. It was, where it was all are. mechanical errors that caused it to sink, you know, yeah. and, and that could, that, that was going to be likely to happen. The reason we developed the submarine tenders, we had that episode on the USS Pigeon, which was a submarine tender. The reason we developed those is yeah. because we lost submarines. And so now we had to have ships following them around in case the submarine went down. Going all the way back to the story of the Hunley. Which is the first time that we know of that a submarine was used to sink a warship, uh, and the Hunley disappeared, and we didn't uh, know what happened to it for 150 years. It's it's just an amazingly. I, I have to say, we're brave to get into those things, especially. I mean, even today. But if you're if you're in World War One and you're getting in a submarine, and if you're in the Civil War and you're getting in a <laughs> submarine, <laughs> you just didn't you, know if you're coming. You were taken. Yeah. Yeah, you you are trusting some stuff that I was, you have to know. I was just perhaps. talking to because next week I'm going to be in Texas talking to people who served on a submarine, and in the prep talk we were talking, and they you know they had a time when the hatch wasn't closed <laughs> properly. This would have been in the 1970s, uh, and yeah. the water was coming in. It came, it was like up to my knees. Well, that gets down into the batteries. That could be deadly to the whole submarine. Uh, and uh, that was Perfectly. that was clear up into the 1970s, and we still have we still have instances where I mean, very expensive nuclear submarines have run into undersea mountains, and and you know, the, uh, I don't know that we've Dangerous. had one where they just disappeared, but we had them where they took a lot of damage, and you know, you're under the water, and that's you know, there's only there's things that can yeah. go wrong. And well, and if you're already under the water, you can just go deeper. That's true. Maybe never yeah. come back. And up. we've we've told some of those stories in the history guy. So I mean, yeah. and so you can really see the, the you know the drama that goes on there. I mean, the 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 Tampa though. I mean, they were just it was just a normal day. They had completed the their escort mission. They were on their way home. They just happened to roll by a submarine that could destroy them, and and they sank very very quickly, and no survivors. Yeah. It was a very tragic story. And it it. It is. It ends up being, you know, when we talk about all these various uh, World War One naval things, um, I think that the naval part of World War One was important. And I mean, in some of the episodes we've talked about, I think we've tried to tried to talk about the fact that it was in some ways vital yeah. uh, to the war. Yeah. Well, we say, I mean, the Grand Fleet. I mean, they had they had uh, Jutland, and then they disappeared. Yeah. Well, that the reason that they, they disappeared is because, and they, they always said about Jutland, you know, that the, the the prisoner has assaulted the jailer, but they're still in prison. I mean, the the Grand Fleet prevented a battle, you know, and who knows what that battle would have been or what it might have meant to the war. So it wasn't irrelevant uh, that the Grand Fleet was there. No. It wasn't irrelevant that American ships like USS Texas were in the Grand Fleet because that was part of. I mean, the 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 naval combat could have changed the war. The same thing is true, yeah. uh, certainly, of the Battle of the Atlantic, very much like uh, the. 
the Second World War. I mean, the, the reason that the Germans returned to unrestricted submarine warfare is that they were convinced that if they could cut off England for about six months, that England was in such dire straits that they were ready to surrender. And so the the entire land battle, all those all those offensives that you know the the great offensives of, of 1919, which were which were just bloody bloody offensives, uh, those those offenses were fought under this premise that 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 the unrestricted submarine warfare was going to keep uh, was going to make Britain collapse before America could bring enough troops in to shift the balance in the war. And so uh, you know of that course naval, that naval yeah the naval battle was it was absolutely critical. The, yeah. the entire war might have centered on it, and the, I mean that strategy was not an unsound strategy. In the end, it failed. Uh, but I mean, it was at you know at that point when everybody was on the verge of collapse, it might have been Germany's best chance of winning that war. And we could well, easily and, be telling the story of how the you know the England and France yeah. surrendered before America entered the war in any large part. And 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 who knows and how it, much that would have changed history. Seriously, and it was close. I mean, there, there. You know, I've I've read some stuff that talks about how effective some of that germ, you know, that Absolutely, unrestricted yeah. England was on the verge of, it, of financial collapse. Yeah, uh, the French army was on the verge of outright rebellion, uh, and I mean, so it was it was close. On um, the sides, were so exhausted. I mean, these are you know two boxers in the ring, barely standing. Uh, and so it ends up being a very, a very close war. And that's why you know the argument that America shifted the balance in the in the First World War, uh, it. It's a compelling argument just because uh, – not because the Americans were so amazing. There was great service from the Americans in the war in, in some yeah. important ways. But uh, it was just because uh, it had come to the point where you know both sides were so weakened that it, any change like that is what could have, could have made the difference. Yeah. And I mean probably is a, is a compelling argument that you know, American coming – the fear of American coming uh, led the Germans to these offensives that exhausted the German army. And, but I mean there's you know, also an argument that was you know, the, the, the influenza – uh, that changed the situation. There's all sorts of different arguments about what was going on there. John Monash changed strategy. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on towards the end of the war. But, I mean, all that comes to the idea that, I mean, uh, that, that yes, uh, it was a war that Germany could have won or the, the, the central yeah. powers could have won. And uh, they had reached stalemate across. And especially with the, the collapse of, uh, of Russia uh, and yeah. uh, I mean, it, it really did. You know, there there was a very real possibility, and so it was. I mean, it, it's interesting to say because was it a strategic blunder to return to unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, even though they knew that was likely to draw America into the war, or was that their last best hope? Yeah. And it's. I, I mean, I've I've read all kinds of opinions on that, and whether you know how quickly it took the United States a while to actually get uh, effective forces, especially on the ground. Uh, uh, shockingly France. quickly. I mean, we were, we were yes. getting troops. Maybe, maybe much more quickly than Germany anticipated. Yeah, possibly imagined. The, yeah, and much more yeah. safely. I mean, we were able to, through convoy systems and stuff, get them there without. I mean, they, they thought that we were going to take huge losses crossing, and, and the losses were actually yeah. relatively small. Uh, but I mean, you know, they got there. They were, you know, hardly trained. I mean, you know, they were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were well, they, yeah, I've, there, I've there read that, stories that too. Like too, we, too, we that... sent airplane engines. Uh, you know, we showed America's industrial might. We were showing up with airplane engines that were so powerful that. They didn't have propellers for them, and I mean, you know, it took. There was always a trouble. I mean, in all the war, in the, in both the first world war and the second world war, uh, there was a lot of trouble uh, with allies being able to to work together. 
Uh, and that, I mean, the, the speed with which we sent troops into the Great War, and that, that led to the important question about whether they parceled American troops out as replacements to French and British units yeah. or whether we, you know, we, we wanted them to be kept as a, uh, Pershing wanted them to be kept as an American force. All that's, I mean, it's a really interesting tale on, on the First World War, but it yeah. all comes down to still that same argument, and that is the naval war was absolutely critical. If the submarines had been able to keep America from sending troops, uh, would the Germans have been able to finally cause the fall of France? Uh, if the submarines had been able to continue to deprive Britain on the level that they did when they first started for another three months, would they have been able to force Britain to a separate peace? Uh, and if they did, I mean, if the Germans won the Great War, uh, then how different is the rest of history? And, and so, yeah. so you can't, I mean, it, the battles, the great battles of that war were fought you know, on the Western Front, almost exclusively. But I mean, yeah. they were a lot of terrible battles worldwide. But I mean, the great battles of that were fought on the Western Front, where millions of troops were involved. Uh, and so it's easy to see the uh, you know, the naval wars not being, you know, anything compared to that. Most of the fleets spent their time, you know, in, in port. Uh, but the, those great battles could not possibly have been fought if the naval war had gone differently. And it, Germany was in the process of a building campaign in order to create a fleet that could compete with the British fleet and the war came a little earlier than they expected. And had they been able to get to the point where they were closer to parity with the British fleet, with the Royal Navy, uh, then it's, it's, it's hard to say how much differently the war could have gone because Britain is an island nation. And uh, so that yeah. depends upon them controlling the waters around the island. It is, I mean, they're just, it's a, I think sometimes we take for granted what happened and how, how really precarious the situation was in so many ways. <laughs> I did want to, th this story reminded me, and we've seen it in a number of other stories, uh, both in the actual, you know, in the ground military and in the Navy. Uh, it always surprises me how many teenagers end up fighting, and not just like 18 and 19-year-olds, but there are just kids mm -hmm. who manage to get onto, in, in this case, there were at least two, a 15 and a 16-year-old who had managed to get onto the boat. Onto the Tampa, yeah. And I, it's, it makes me wonder, you know, how and why do so many of these young, young people insist on serving despite the dangers? I, uh, because I think that could still happen today. I think, I think if, uh, I mean, part of that is patriotic fervor and part of that is people that are you know, kind of searching for meaning. Uh, you know, some of them are whole, you know, military families and, and, uh, uh, in, in the Great War, one of the things was it was there was this feeling when America was entering that the war wasn't going to last much longer, and so I mean people were you know hoping that they would get into the service quickly enough to be able to actually be put into combat, uh, which you know then they got there and found out it was not such a wonderful thing, uh, and it, uh, their enlistment in the Coast Guard, uh, I mean those two both were driven by the war, but I mean you might have you might have enlisted in the Coast Guard previous to that not thinking that they were going to be I mean they were you know they were essentially a police organization they were less likely to fight warships or anything like that. Uh, and it's it's interesting because I think the United States was relatively more careful than other belligerents in terms of keeping young people out, and yet they still managed to yeah. enlist younger than the the absolute requirement of age seventeen, which was the requirement to, that was you know written into law. Uh, and you couldn't be drafted; you had to be twenty one to be drafted. And so these are when when you had a a fifteen year old on the Tampa, that was someone that ha you know had to have gone through some significant effort. To get in yeah. outside of law and probably against their parents' wishes, uh, and had no risk of being uh, 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 drafted into the military otherwise, and so I mean they were choosing to be there. I yeah I don't know. I mean I, when I was fourteen, let's say I wasn't thinking about serving in the First World War, but you know there wasn't a war going on. It, 
That's true. And I don't know what it would have looked like if there was, um, and especially, I mean, a war in the way that the World War One was. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, would have, he was getting pretty old by 1915, but uh, he he was very, very happy to go to war in World War One, and he would have yeah, he wanted to. if he, he had been allowed to. We had, we had some very old yeah. officers actually show up in the, in the First World War. But uh, uh, they, they raised enlistment later in the war so that you could be 51 years old. And enlist for the first time as a doughboy and go go fight in the war. I tell you, that's that seems a little rough. By the, I mean, I'm I am not fifty, but it, imagining yeah. being that at that, that point, being, that being like, the all point right, you let's originally go. enlist. Yeah, and there were some. Yeah. I mean, there's some stories. Like, I mean, you get lots of stories about younger kids too uh, in the Second World War, but there's some stories about some older, yeah. you know, people too older than they probably should have been that were still able to enlist for various reasons and went and fought the war. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Yep. Uh, he was he was not in good health, and and he still went and fought in the Second World War, having fought in the First World War. And and he the mm-hmm. day he was promoted to major general, they went to his uh, his uh, tent, his his uh, trailer, to tell him that he'd been promoted to major general. And found out that he had died in the night of a heart attack, and uh, and but he could be that he was Theodore Roosevelt's son. He could be there, and and so uh, I think there are there are always people that are you know probably we think shouldn't be as ideal soldiers shouldn't be there and they they want to be there and sometimes they yeah. they uh accomplish incredible things but i mean you know sometimes you know horrible things happen to 15 year olds who should have lived a much longer life than to just be on the tampa uh, when she was yeah. sunk it's and i mean in europe you know it was a it was a different question i think that everybody there uh, in a lot of those places understood that they were fighting for uh Fighting for their existence yeah, yeah. to some the extent. Had been overrun. So, so, I mean, if you were in yeah, you understand if you were in Belgium or France. Italy or, or Serbia or Bulgaria or something like that, Turkey. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, there was a point where they're just enlisting anybody who could pick up a gun. And yeah. uh, you're maybe not being all that particular if they're yeah. uh, 16 instead of uh, yeah. 18 well, I mean, or something yeah. like that. Do, I mean, is anybody keeping track of how old you know the, the resistance is in, in Ukraine today? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I you know I, I, I would know. suspect. That if there were, you know, people below what you would consider regular age for fighting who were willing to take up arms, uh, that they would be fighting there. Yeah, and that's I mean, really and true. that's uh, there's lots of other conflicts going on in the world today where there's a lot of other issues with child soldiers. It still very much goes yeah. on. I think it would be harder to come into say to the U.S. military and just lie about your age or fudge your birth certificate. Or you know, look a little older than you are and still manage to enlist. I I, I don't know. I'm trying, but I think it would be. I think we. We we drive documents days. a little bit more so that it would be somewhat more yeah. difficult. Yeah, in in World War, even in World War Two, you know, if you just look old enough and you've kind of fudged some dates, you might be yeah. able to get through. Yeah, I think I think some of them did. I, I think there's actually stories where you would you would hire you know someone who was uh, uh, homeless or drunk or something like that. They come in and claim to be your father and give you permission. And uh, I mean, there's <laughs> lots of different ways that people got in. I think that would be harder today. And I hope that we're more careful about that. But I mean, the, the world still fights with child soldiers. And uh, yeah. so it's as shocking as it is. I mean, a generation before the Tampa, uh, before automation, uh, it was fairly typical to have young boys on naval vessels. I and mean, they, they, they called them powder monkeys. And they would be carrying uh, ammunition up from the hold. And so they could move very quickly through the hatches. Uh, and so they, you know, they, they would typically enlist, you know, 9, 10, 11 year old kids and have mm-hmm. them serve on warships. And then, of course, they were. They were as, as vulnerable to combat as anybody else, and you know many of them died. Potentially, we, it's not we, we don't know. Potentially, the youngest uh, person to serve in the U.S. military during the American Revolution, uh, it was a it was a ten year old powder monkey on a, that that died uh, in in the U.S. Wow. Navy. 
uh, that that's kind of unproven, but I mean, there's an argument that there's a grave that represents a, a ten-year-old boy. We we actually in uh, in our family tree we have a uh, he's my sixth great grandfather, so he'd be your fifth great grandfather. Um, was 14 when he enlisted. His name was Isham Browder Jr. And he was uh, 14 when he entered the war and he served until 1779, was wounded at the Battle of Monmouth. <laughs> he was a. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they, quite they paid attention to any rules at all. And so you could get younger people uh, in the military. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's a they terrifying were, They were idea. willing and able to pick up a weapon. That was sometimes all it took. So I, you would like to think that we lived in an age where that didn't happen anymore, but I, I think we, we live in a country where you are relatively safe from being a, a child warrior, but uh, not necessarily a world where that doesn't happen. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? <laughs> I've been watching a lot. I love Magellan TV. The the one that I watched just recently that was absolutely fascinating to me was Remembering Leonard Nimoy. Uh, I, I think viewers know that I'm, uh, in addition to being a history fan, that I, I, I like science fiction. I'm an old-style Star Trek fan. I'm not quite old enough to have seen it in first run. I was seeing it in syndication, the original series, but of course, you know, I, he's, he's been a, he was a hero of mine for a very long time, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and this was, uh, it was really very touching, told a lot of stories I had never heard. It was largely told, some of it was in his own words, uh, some of it was from his family. Uh, where there was narration, it was John Delancey, who also has his Star Trek connection. It's clear that this was being produced before his death. Uh, and it, it is it is sad, because underlying current throughout is that he suffered from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease because he smoked at an early, you know, he grew up in a time when literally the TV ads had doctors recommending which brand of cigarette and that ended up affecting his whole life. So it has a powerful story, which is don't smoke. And and it was very personal about him. One of the things that just made me laugh is that he he left New York. He told his dad, I want to go become an actor in California. His dad did not believe that he could make a a living doing that. And so his dad said, learn the accordion. You can always make a living (laughs) playing the accordion. I wonder, I wonder when that advice went sour. I mean, I wonder when it went stale. Yeah, at, what, at what point was learning the accordion not a no sure longer way to a way that you can you know assure that you'll be able to pay the rent? I have no idea how many professional accordionists there are in the United States. I would imagine though that not very many that you might have a unique skill. I, I don't I don't know. Um, that's actually maybe an interesting question. Maybe we have somebody who is making a living as an accordion. Yeah, player yeah. in our well, audience let's, somewhere. Let's I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, Give us a tell. We'll have to do a story on an accordion player. But it is. Uh, it was. It was a great, fascinating story. He told me uh, he did a lot more work than I realized. He did a lot more theater work than I realized. And it was, you know, told from people who, you know, were family members who really knew him. And, you know, one of the great things about Magellan TV is you just never know what you're going to stumble on in there. And yeah. So, I mean, sometimes you're talking about, you know, bats in a cave and sometimes you're talking about, you know, battle in a war. And sometimes you're talking about, the you know, the, the real life of Spock. And to, to illustrate that, what I was watching was actually a part of a series called Murder Maps. They talk about these usually older murders. The one I, the one I watched is about the... Bermondsey Horror, which was, uh, it's a Bermondsey's like a little town in near London, uh, in the lesser good parts of London in the mid 19th century. 
And it's about a murder committed by Marie Manning and her husband. It's actually an absolutely thrilling tale. There's a lot of reenactment, and I think they do a pretty good job with the reenactment. It is quite a story, and it even ends up having Charles Dickens become involved. And actually, this this murder case plays a big role in kind of how the modern world began to view public executions. So it's it's a really, really interesting... I don't want to give anything away, because it is a little bit of a mystery stuff, which I think is what, what part of what makes it so cool to watch. Uh, but it's called The Bermondsey Horror, and it's part of Murder Maps. There are like nine other episodes, and I know that they have one that talks about... Jack the Ripper and some other folks like that. And their big thing is that they have, they put in some maps to show you like kind of the relationships of all these different things, which is also kind of cool. Yes, yeah, um, true crime, another great uh, whole genre of that and tons of true crime on on Magellan TV. So, so that you never, you know, you can go in and there's all sorts of stuff too. I mean, we watched one on a racehorse I'd never heard of. We watched, uh, of course, lots of history. Uh, but you can also see a lot of science and nature and, and it's, it's just fantastic. Uh, if you are not subscribing to Magellan TV, you are absolutely missing out. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, The History Guy tells the story of the USCGC Icarus, which fought a much better armed submarine in the infamous Torpedo Alley off the coast of the United States in 1942. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. When the United States entered the Second World War, the country was woefully unprepared for the U-boat menace. The government had neither ships nor strategy and was desperately trying to develop both, even as they were trying to hide from the public the extent of the damage that the German U-boats were doing to shipping in U.S. waters. The U-boats had such a run that the period from January of 1942 to about August of that year was referred to by U-boat commanders as the happy time. And it is in that context that a small, outdated, recently refitted U.S. Coast Guard vessel with a recently promoted commander found itself in a life-or-death duel with a German U-boat twice its size. And it is a fight that deserves to be remembered. On December 8th, the day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States officially declared war on the Empire of Japan. Three days later, on December 11th, Japan's allies Germany and Italy declared war on the United States. The U.S. Senate voted to declare war on Germany and Italy just a few hours later, and the U.S. had fully entered the Second World War. But in many ways, the U.S. was not prepared for that war. While most every American remembers Pearl Harbor, the date which will live in infamy, Far fewer recall the period from January to August of 1942 that some historians have called the Second Pearl Harbor, when Axis submarines sank more than 600 ships in the face of a disorganized American defense. Thousands of lives, mostly of civilian merchant mariners, were lost. Calling it a Second Pearl Harbor is actually an understatement. It is not that Germany was heavily prepared. They had relatively few long-range U-boats, and they were themselves surprised by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entry into the war, and so had not pre-positioned their boats. But they were much quicker to act in the face of a slow and confused American response. Admiral Carl Dernitz, commander of the German submarine fleet, gained approval for a U-boat operation in U.S. coastal waters, titled Operation Drumbeat, on December 12th, the day after the war was declared. The gravity of the Allied shipping losses are partially compounded by the fact that, in an effort to preserve national morale and deceive the enemy as to their success, 
the U.S. actively suppressed reporting of the losses. Losses were underreported, while claims of U-boat losses were exaggerated. In fact, in the first four months of 1942, only one U-boat was sunk by an American ship in U.S. waters, the U-85, sunk with all hands lost by the destroyer USS Roper. Americans hardly realized at the time that we were at war, more or less taking substantial losses. Britain had been fighting the U-boat since 1940 and had learned many lessons, but the U.S. was excruciatingly slow at taking British advice. American ships continued using normal shipping lanes. Despite the British experience, the U.S. refused to move to a convoy system and the mistaken argument that that would increase targets. U.S. officials were afraid to issue blackout orders to coastal cities, not wanting to affect tourism or alarm the population. When British intelligence was able to provide a detailed warning to the U.S. of the U-boats heading to the United States, the Navy warned area commanders, but did almost nothing else to prepare or respond. German U-boats operated off the east coast with virtual impunity, so unafraid of the Americans that they were hunting in waters usually considered to be too shallow for submarine operations because they limited the ability to avoid anti-submarine depth charges. U-boat captains referred to this period as the American shooting season. One of their favorite places to hunt was on the outer banks of North Carolina, which earned the nickname Torpedo Alley. By the end of the war, the wrecks of some 400 ships littered the ocean bottom in Torpedo Alley. It was there in Torpedo Alley on May 7th of 1942 that the newly refitted Thetis-class U.S. Coast Guard patrol boat Icarus encountered the Type 7C submarine U-352. The Thetis-class patrol boats were designed in 1930 to combat the practice of running liquor into the United States during the era of Prohibition, which was commonly called rum running. In all, 18 of the vessels would be built between 1930 and 1934. They were fast and efficient, built to run down the smugglers. The steel-hulled boats took their names from Greek mythology. Icarus was the seventh to be built, built by the Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine, and launched in March of 1932. When the Germans launched Operation Drumbeat, the major U.S. naval assets were committed to the North Atlantic. Naval assets were spread thin, and the U.S. was desperately short of specialized anti-submarine vessels. They were even operating converted yachts and nearly 40-year-old gunboats. The Thetis-class vessels, despite their small size, were refitted with depth charge racks and pressed into anti-submarine duty. Powered by two 670-horsepower engines, a Thetis-class patrol vessel had a length of 165 feet, a draft of 7 feet 6 inches, and a displacement of 332 tons. The top speed was 13 knots. It was armed with a single 76-millimeter main gun, two racks for depth charges, and a World War I vintage Y-gun that allowed two depth charges to be thrown to the sides. Icarus, with a crew of 45, was commanded by 52-year-old Lieutenant Maurice D. Juster, Jester had enlisted in the U.S. Life-Saving Service in 1917. By 1935, he had risen to the rank of Chief Boson. With the advent of war, he had been commissioned an officer and given command of Icarus. He had seen over 25 years of service in the Coast Guard, but this was his first command. The German Type 7C submarine was the workhorse of the U-boat fleet, with 568 commissioned during the war. Launched in May of 1941, the U-352 was powered by two supercharged six-cylinder diesel engines. It had a length of 220 feet, a draft of 15 feet, and a displacement of 764 tons. The submarine had a maximum surface speed of 17.7 knots and an underwater speed of 7.4 knots. It could operate in depths up to 750 feet. 
It was armed with an 8.8-centimeter main deck gun and five torpedo tubes, four in the bow and one in the stern. It was larger, newer, faster, and more heavily armed than the Icarus. The 45-person crew of the U-352 was commanded by Captain Lieutenant Helmut Rothke, commanding his second patrol in the U-352 and obsessed with earning the Knight's Cross for sinking 100,000 tons of shipping. Rathke and the U-352 had arrived off the coast of North Carolina on May 2nd after a four-week crossing. Rathke was anxious to get his first kill. When his radio man told him that he heard propeller noises, Rathke decided to attack, a dangerous move in broad daylight. Rathke looked through the periscope and saw a mast, and so he fired two torpedoes at the as-yet-unidentified vessel. On the Icarus, the soundman had heard an unidentified noise on its outdated sonar equipment. Jester had just come to the bridge when the little boat was rocked by an explosion. Rathke's torpedoes had missed, but one had exploded nearby on the ocean bottom. Unfazed, Jester called his crew to battle stations and charged the location of the sonar sound. When Rathke heard the explosion, he assumed that he'd gotten his first kill but when he looked into his periscope, he was shocked to see an armed cutter charging his direction. The hunter had become the hunted. Still, Rathke outgunned the Icarus if he could only evade them long enough to be able to surface and get his crew to the deck guns. Rathke decided to make a run to the spot where his torpedo had exploded, knowing the debris it had kicked up would hide his propeller noise. But Lieutenant Jester, the veteran, anticipated the move and kicked off five depth charges in a diamond formation. The attack devastated U-352. The hits near the conning tower broke out all the gauges, disabled the periscope. Hits in the rear knocked the engines off their mounts, and a hit in the front blew off the deck gun. Rathke could no longer hope to win a fight. His only hope now was to sit on the bottom and hope that the Icarus thought that they had escaped. But Jester didn't bite. Another round of depth charges forced Rathke to give the order to surface the ship and abandon ship. The fight was over in minutes. At first, when the U-352 surfaced and the crew started coming out, Icarus thought that they were trying to fight back and machine-gunned the crew. Several were killed before Jester found out that they were surrendering and ordered a ceasefire. Thirty-three members of the crew of U-352 were rescued and taken into custody that day, including Captain Lieutenant Helmut Rothke. They were the first German prisoners of war captured by Americans in the Second World War. That's right, the first German POWs were not captured by the Army in North Africa, but by the Coast Guard in North Carolina. For his skill in defeating the much larger vessel, Lieutenant Jester was awarded the Navy Cross. Rathke and his crew would spend the rest of the war in a POW camp. The happy time would go on for several more months, and quite a few vessels would still be sunk, but eventually America wrested back control of its shores. Better convoy tactics, more aircraft, general blackout orders for coastal cities, made hunting in Torpedo Alley more dangerous for the U-boats than for their prey. But for a while, the U-boats ruled Torpedo Alley, and that is all the more reason while the day that the Icarus took on a giant and won deserves to be remembered. Possibly the most shocking part of this story, I think, for a lot of people, and I, I know it was for me when I was first, you know, listening to it, is just how completely unprepared and disjointed the American response was in those early months of the war. And I think that we, you know, when you can look at history from a distance, we we see things move so quickly. But that that learning period is a really 
interesting thing to study. And it makes you wonder specifically in this one, you know, why didn't we listen to the British? With There's their a advice? lot of discussion of that. I mean, the, the general perspective that historians will tell you is that Ernest King was an Anglophobe. He didn't trust the British Navy. Uh, and so he just didn't listen to him. But I, I, I think that's probably well oversimplified. I, they, I mean, there are a number of things. Like they, uh, they didn't want to panic the public. And so that's why they didn't, they didn't have you know, rules about turning lights off on coastal towns, which means that you just could see the silhouettes of the ships going by. Uh, and it, it, there's a broader question of that because we knew war was coming. And you know that when you look at it, see like, you know, the planning, you know, the Essex class aircrackers, those were already funded and in construction when the war started. How do we build that huge fleet that was there in World War II? It wasn't because of the war. It was all in anticipation of the war. Uh, so, but we seem to miss that we didn't have nearly enough anti-submarine assets. And uh, some of those had to be designed during the war. And that's, it's kind of funny what we were prepared to do uh, and what we were not prepared to do. And that really does show in us pressing these little cutters that were built for rum runners uh, into service to take on submarines that were much larger than them. So I, I, it's, sure. it's just, you know, uh, you're, always, you're always trying to fight the last war. Um, I think we thought we had plenty of destroyers, and it turned out that those uh, vintage World War I destroyers that were built well after the, ended up not, you know, not being great anti-submarine assets because they didn't turn quickly enough. I think there's various reasons for it. So, and, and you know, we didn't know what war was. You know, yeah. I mean, they, they did. No, we certainly Europe. hadn't faced the U-boat menace. Yeah. And even though, I mean, it is, you think that, you know, we'd look at it and think that the the British had uh, had experience with it. But on the other hand, I can also see where, I mean, always, I think everyone kind of wants to think that they've got a solution that maybe the other people don't. And, I mean, ultimately, we learned those lessons. And Torpedo Alley is a place where we uh, we really learned some we of those lessons really learned slowly. Yeah, um, uh, we didn't do convoys because we didn't have enough escorts for the convoys. Uh, we didn't do block at blackouts because uh, we didn't want the public to realize that there was a risk just off the coast. Uh, and uh, the, uh, you can put it all together in various reasons. Uh, and and we we learned quickly on a learning curve. But I think you'd be you know shocked to find out how many German submarines got very close to American shores during the Second World War. Yeah. Well, they were very capable of it. The uh, the capabilities of those German submarines, really, they were impressive. Yeah. I mean, they were, especially at the beginning of the war, they were better than yeah. uh, anything No one thought of them had. really crossing the ocean. But, I mean, they, yeah. they built a larger Type 9 submarine, uh, and the, the Type 7s were really not intended for transatlantic crossings. And they, yeah. they actually used those uh, those Type 7s farther afield than they originally had planned that they would use them. It was a Type 7 submarine, actually, in the in the story with the Icarus. Uh, and so they they actually had a much greater capability. than I mean, I mean they had... They had cross-ocean capability in the Great War, but, I mean, it was significantly yeah. different in the Second World War. And more submarines than we realized, and the Germans were simply more prepared to, to be able to send those out. Operation Drumroll, or Drumbeat, that would be, depends on how it's translated, yeah. uh, occurred much more quickly than we possibly imagined that they could mobilize and have, you know, a significant impact. Which is, I mean, that's an interesting question in itself and how they were able to do that and respond so quickly and so effectively. And I, I don't know, that's that's kind of one of those things that I, I don't think I have enough knowledge of to, to uh, yeah. really talk I mean, about. There's a lot but. of story. We had a lot of destroyers, but a lot of those destroyers were not in serviceable condition, uh, ready for service. Yeah. A lot of those were old or outdated. And uh, in, in the end, we had, and a lot of those were initially uh, sent to protect convoys, uh, transatlantic convoys. So we were fighting the Battle of the Atlantic. And so we were not prioritizing defending American shores. 
uh, and that all added together. And, and that goes for some uh, interesting stories. It's uh, the Civil Air Patrol subchasers. Uh, it's just because we were because we we were desperate, uh, then we were able to take these people that were either below or above military age and shove them in a Piper Cub or some any. Any airplane had 90 horsepower uh, and have them fly around and chase around submarines. And uh, the Coast Guard Auxiliary, where we had people, you know, we were, we were using Hemingway's yacht to go out and hunt submarines. And, and those, are, those are fascinating stories, but they really do show the level of desperation that the, that the United States was in at the time. Uh, and eventually, of course, we built the, the subchase. That's an interesting story, too, how we came to build the, the, the subchasing uh, ships that we did and the escort ships that we did. And we didn't, we didn't have a destroyer escort class at the beginning of the war and, and ended up building fine dis- destroyer escorts as, as the war went on. Uh, so I, it was, I, I, I don't, it's, it all makes for just an inter- I have I don't have answers for exactly why we weren't where we were going to be or why we had to learn lessons that we did. I, I can just say that it, it makes for interesting history. We can't change it now. <laughs> no, no. Now we can talk we about want it, to. right? We want, to, we want the... to tell the stories. It certainly makes for some dramatic stories. I mean, uh, Which is, I, I think, really exemplified in, in this story of the Icarus. Um, it, it does seem like, especially on the surface, that it really is a, a classic David versus Goliath tale. The submarines seem to have the advantage. Absolutely. Um, the submarines saw surprise. the Icarus first. Yeah, and, yep. and, and, and the submarine was much larger than the Icarus. The submarine actually would outgun the Icarus on the surface. Uh, yeah. And it ended Incredible. up being a very brief battle, and that did not go well for the U-boat. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I kind of, I kind of wondered what your thoughts were on like what the deciding factor was that it, this battle went so unexpectedly. I, there is, uh, I mean, the, certainly the the U-boat commander uh, was very anxious about uh, success, and it, there are some different arguments that he, you know, he was probably too aggressive and wasn't careful and that might have made a difference uh, he fired at a ship not knowing what the ship was uh, certainly there could be an element of luck i mean it is simply an element of luck that the torpedo struck the ground before it struck icarus uh, and in striking the ground did not damage icarus and that gave icarus a chance to to you know move into battle stations and prepare uh, well it seems like that too maybe the german um, submarine didn't respond to it exactly they they took the the explosion as success yeah, and perhaps and, they. Uh, well, he, you know, he looks at he thinks the boat's sinking. He looks at the periscope, and here's a here's a, a what he thought was a merchant vessel that he sunk is actually a fully operational anti-submarine you know military vessel that had to be quite a shock to him. Uh, and but I mean, there's certainly there's certainly skill involved too. And and Jester, yeah. you have to really give that guy credit because he was I mean, he was an old dude that started with the surfmen, uh, he st- <laughs> you know, and uh, he ended up you know in, you know promoted up to lieutenant and took command of this cutter uh, uh, because they were you know generally were promoting people because they had to, had to move it into the service. And he had very very good instincts. I mean, he he immediately knew where that submarine was going. He immediately knew what tactic they were going to try. He immediately saw through them trying to hide on the bottom, uh, and they. They just, they just, you know, bragged at him with a. Uh, that's not easy to do. And uh, I mean, there were a lot he of stories panic. in the Second World War where they, you know, they missed with those kind of shots. Yeah, and he didn't. He yeah. didn't panic, even though his, his his ship was clearly in danger from the moment that it started. And so there's uh, there was skill involved and there was luck involved, and and you know those two came together, and it turned out that you know David, you know Goliath missed. Uh, I guess Goliath <laughs> took the first shot in this one. David Goliath was the opposite. I guess you know Goliath yeah, was the... shot the sling. But I mean, you know, the the the, the, the Goliath missed, and then it was uh, Jester's turn, and uh, he made the best of that. If he had missed on his second shot, then the, then there was a very good chance the submarine would either escape or be able to outgun them on on the surface. Uh, but he didn't. He, he he made his first shot count, and 
and that's how it turned out. So I mean, it's a very exciting battle, but I mean, as a battle, I mean, it took you know probably five minutes. You know, not more than 15. So, I mean, for such a brief battle, I mean, it makes for an exciting battle. And, I mean, the thing about the battle being that brief is that either either of those ships easily could have destroyed the other. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's a good chunk of why this story is so exciting. And this, uh, these, we, you know, you've told, and we have told, a lot of these single action battles. And like you said, that's where the a lot of the drama really is, is that every, every time you're talking about a big battle, that's... Uh, uh, really just a whole bunch of small, oh, small actions are going yeah. on. And these, and there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of these that occurred over the course of yeah. the Second World War. And every one of them is compelling. You know, you're, you, they, they always say about, you know, being in the Navy that it's, it's, it's hours and hours of boredom and a few seconds of stark screaming terror. And, and this is the, these, these are those moments of stark screaming yeah. terror. And it, it's also just, it's an interesting story. The first Axis POWs taken by American military in the Second World War were captured by the Coast Guard. I mean, how many people know that? Right. And in, you know, the waters off of North Carolina and not, yeah. not even, not in not North Africa, in Europe or, not in Europe. Yeah. It was, it occurred, you know, just off the coast of the United States. It's a surprising story. And I, I, I think that that's a good chunk of why there's, it's so important to tell. And then of course, I mean, you know, this was the sacrifices and service of men who uh, deserve to be remembered and they were risking their lives, you know, even though they survived this one so well, Ultimately, I mean, yeah, man, absolutely. Were, well, easy. I mean, both sides, they were risking their lives. And yeah, I mean, the, the very ones. first U-boat sunk by an American ship in the, in the Second World War, I mean, the U-boat was lost with all hands. And that's another story, too. And, they, you know, they're buried anonymously in a, in a graveyard in New Jersey. Uh, and so they both sides there, they were, ta- I mean, <laughs> it's pretty gutsy to crawl into a metal tube in France uh, and say, I'm going to go try to sink ships in North Carolina. Uh, and yeah. he was taking particular risks that night, uh, uh, Rathke was, uh, because uh, he was in too shallow a water for a submarine. I mean, he just thought that you know it was still the happy time and that he could play however he wanted to. And it turned out uh, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, still uh, could have gotten the drop on Icarus and, and failed. And it, 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 what a brave little ship. I mean, I just, I just love that these little, yeah. these little metal Coast Guard vessels uh, that were not built for this at all. They, sh- they, they give them some old outdated World War I weapons and say, go and, you know, knock yourself out. And they do. They did. They succeeded. That's fantastic. Right. Basically, basically on the idea of at least, uh, at least we'll have something out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's better than nothing. You're good on them. <laughs> they did a great job, <laughs> and, and and they they did their jobs. They did it well. They did it under fire. They did it even though they the very moment that that fight started, everybody on that boat's life was at risk, and they did their job. And because they did their job, uh, they survived. Uh, and uh, that was one last U-boat to hunt American ships. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.